Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight into today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lasley. Uh, Mike, how would you like to talk about space today? I love talking about space. You know it. That's what I'm here for. All right. Well, let's do it. Uh, we're excited today to be joined by veteran astronaut Tom Jones, uh, who not only is a veteran astronaut, but is a veteran author and has a new book out called Space Shuttle Stories, Firsthand Astronaut Accounts from All 135 Missions. Uh, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Mike. Like, great to be with you to talk about space and air. So the first thing that jumped out at me in this book is that it's difficult to put it down. So in grad school, you're taught how to gut a book. So intro, conclusion, the main points from each chapter, uh, and and just keep going, right? And to a certain extent, we have to do that on the show because there, there's so many good books that we want to talk about. But I found it difficult to kind of put your book down because each page and each mission, if you will, each story made me want to keep reading it. It, it made me want to continue to learn about, you know, just each and every mission. So my first question then is, how did you decide which stories to use? There was a big challenge in getting all of these interviews in the can. You know, I wanted to tackle this job of talking to one astronaut from every one of the 135 missions, because I realized that I am not ambitious enough to try to bite off all 355 shuttle crew members that ever flew on the space shuttle. It's just impossible. So I said, but I, I probably can get one person from each of the missions. So um, I wasn't being very choosy. I'll say it this way. I wanted to get one individual from each of the missions. I knew a lot of those people as colleagues, friends, crewmates. So I sort of started with the easy ones in the, in the sense of penciling in their names for each of these missions. But then I had to do a lot of um, uh, thinking about, okay, STS-2, STS-5, STS-9. You know, I don't really know these people very well except professionally as colleagues. And so who would I approach? And so in some cases, it was just, you know, the person that I had a, an association with in the past and we'd had conversations in the past and they were easy picks. And uh, others though, uh, like let's say for STS-4 with Ken Mattingly and Hank Hartsfield, uh, Hank had passed away. And Ken Mattingly was in his early 90s. And we, of course, we just lost him at the end of last year. Um, Hank was, or Ken was in his early 90s and wasn't doing interviews anymore. So now what do I do? So I had to choose the way I could fulfill the mission of the book, which was to go to find an oral history of Ken Mattingly with Johnson Space Center. And I was able to use that published material to fill in his slot. So the way I started was chronologically to try to get to people who were the uh, most mature, the most senior people in the shuttle history and get them before they flew west. And uh, in fact, since the book's been published, we've lost two or three people that I interviewed for the book. Um, and then I went on from there to fill in with colleagues, uh, classmates, shuttle crewmates, and then people that I've you know overlapped with at NASA. So you know, my strategy was sort of dictated by the age of the participants and then the, the associations that I already had. That's really, really fascinating. And like you said, you conducted all these interviews. I think it's 130 interviews um, looking at all of the, the missions, like you said. Uh, but you also went back and looked at some earlier oral histories and looked at some other books. And something we like to unpack on this show is how these books come together. And so just to kind of expand on what you were just saying, like 
what was the rest of the research process like in going about assembling all this stuff? Because you also have your personal experience, right, of being on several missions to kind of weave into all this as well. So how did you research all those pieces? What was that process like in weaving this together? And was that, you know, similar or different from some of your previous works, like skywalking or something like that? Well, the biggest nut to crack was to get one individual from each of the 135 flights. And so, you know, we have two lost shuttle crews with 14 individuals that I can't talk to. Uh, some of them were friends, uh, particularly all the ones on Columbia were friends of mine. So um, I had some sense of how to go about finding their voices. But the Challenger guys, I only met Dick Scobie uh, briefly at a reception once and didn't know anybody else on the Challenger crew. So I had to go and find their voices through media interviews or print interviews that they had given back in the 1980s. And so, you know, I had the, a spreadsheet, STS-1 to STS-135, and I had to fill in all those names. So that's the first thing I did was write down the ideas of who I would would approach and identify the problems. And then the then I had to tackle the highest priority ones, which was like, you know, getting to Ken Mattingly. Um, that didn't happen, but I did find his oral history. Um, and then getting to those individuals on the cruise early on where there was only two or four individuals who flew. So that was my task. And I be, just began to log the interviews. I would do 45 minutes or an hour with each one on a Zoom call. And fortunately, the pandemic hit. So I was able to have the time and they had the time to sit and talk to me for a couple of years there. So it took about two and a half years to fill in that whole spreadsheet with logged interviews. And then I had a recording, which then with uh, some some human help, some research assistance, if you will, and then through the magic of uh, machine based transcribing, I was able to get these um, interviews converted into transcripts, which then I could edit. And so the last year of the project, after I got all the interviews I can, was to convert them all to transcripts and then shrink them down to the target given me by Smithsonian Books and my editors, uh, you know, to get them down to about 550 words so they'd fit on the page and make the book a, a, a digestible uh, chronicle of the oral history of the shuttle. You mentioned both the, the Challenger and the Columbia crews, and this is something I found very poignant in the book. And as I mentioned that each page made me want to keep turning to read about the next mission. But as you go through 1983, 1984, 1985, I'm coming, like, I know what's coming. I know that Challenger is coming. And then after that, uh, as you get into the late nineties, the early two thousands, I know that Columbia uh, is eventually going to be on uh, the next page. So as, as you were preparing this book, how did you, as the author editor, approach those two missions in particular? They were worrisome to me because I didn't want to um, skirt past the fact that we lost 14 astronauts and two space shuttle orbiters. So it's a very serious subject. And of course, these are milestones in the history of the shuttle program. So I had to do uh, a thorough job of presenting the voices of those crews. And, you know, like I said, I had some sense of, you know, Dick Scobie and his voice and personality from having met him. But then you go look into the 1980s and, you know, the internet is a big help. You can find lots of, you know, video clips and some press interviews that you can search for, but are they the right ones to use to represent their voice? And that was the worry that I had was that I would um, just not dig thoroughly enough to identify these people as individuals. So um, Krista McAuliffe, as you might imagine, scads of information about her, and I think what saved me in the end was that NASA had done some pre-flight press conferences before Challenger. 
Um, and I was able to listen to those long video sessions with reporters and, and get the astronauts' voices coming through in those forums. Uh, there were uh, even there was some lucky material that I stumbled upon, you know, in researching Ellison Onizuka out there in Hawaii, where his hometown was. You know, I found the Japanese American Cultural Center on the island on in the state of Hawaii that helped me track down some of Ellison's remarks. And then uh, Ron McNair, I found a commencement speech that he gave um, in the years or so before he died. So they came from different directions but I was able to get a unique voice for each of those individuals. And then with the Columbia astronauts, it was probably the opposite challenge. I knew from my own experience that NASA had done an hour long video interview with each crew member before they flew in the studio at Johnson Space Center. So there I could listen and I did listen to those individuals talk about their hopes for the flight and what their plans were. But a lot of those interviews become technical and they're talking about the technical job that they're going to be doing on the flight. It wasn't about their impression of space flight or what it really meant to them. So uh, I was I was I was worried about Columbia because these are people I knew I, did, I wanted to do their stories justice. In the end, it was a gift from Laurel Clark, who was my uh, colleague at the astronaut office, and she worked for me on the space station program in the late 90s. And here she is flying on her first mission on Columbia, and I found out that she had sent an email back to her family and friends uh, near the end of the mission. And in reading that, it just, um, her exuberance and satisfaction at the science work that she was doing and her, her um, gratitude to her crewmates and the wonder of the scene viewed out the Space Shuttle Columbia's windows, all of that was wrapped up in this one email to family and friends. And so after reading it, I thought, well, this is gonna represent the whole crew because I know how much they were having a similar experience just from knowing them. And so I talked to John Clark, her husband, and uh, got permission to use Laurel's email to represent the STS-107 crew. And I don't think I could have gotten a better representation of that crew than the, than the emotion that Laurel poured into that email. So that's what saved me. You know, you're talking about trying to capture that experience of what it feels like to be in space and, and, and the kind of emotion that goes along with that. That's something the book, to me, really did a good job with of, you know, someone like me and, and most of our readers can only imagine what it feels like to be in space. Uh, but this book kind of gets, I think, as close as possible to really capturing that. Some of the language in here is very poetic it's very beautiful. Some of it's very frank and technical, and, and you kind of get all these different perspectives. Um, so I'm wondering if you could tell us kind of from your perspective and experience, what is it like to be in space? You know, can you walk us through maybe a typical mission or or kind of the things that you experience being up there? Sure. Well, for a space shuttle astronaut, the typical mission experience was a near-death experience on ascent on the shuttle for eight and a half minutes, you're propelled to, to a speed of 17,500 miles per hour. And you know you believe it's all going to go perfectly because the techs and launch controllers at the Cape have done 105% of the, the work required to get that ship ready. You're not gonna leave the ground until it's almost perfect. So I relied on them. I put my trust in them to get me to space in one piece. But you, there's no denying that you know, you've got butterflies in your stomach on the launch pad, worried about your job performance when you get up there. And you know you're about to go through this crucible of uh, a, a giant physics experiment that you're at the center of. So you have to go through this eight and a half minute uh, metamorphosis from Earthling to space traveler. And the shuttle puts you through that. And it's one of the most exhilarating, probably the, the peak 
physical experience and emotional experience of my life in terms of professional uh, reward and experience. You know, there's things like marriage and having your children, you know, those are the, the peak things in your life. But as a professional, this was the peak experience. Um, all your hopes are wrapped up in this ascent and you're hoping you're going to be able to come back to your family and you got to go through this eight and a half minutes to get there. Then you get to space and you've gone through this big emotional high. And now it's like, let's get to work. And you literally have about 30 seconds to think about how neat that launch was. And now, now it's, let's get going for 16 hours a day for two weeks or more aboard the shuttle. And I flew on the longest space shuttle mission, 18 days. And you have to keep up a pace of performance professionally uh, to keep your nose to the grindstone, help your crewmates out, meet all the objectives in the flight plan day by day, and do that nonstop for two, two and a half weeks. And that's really a challenge. Uh, it's the hardest I've ever worked, even more than at the Air Force Academy. <laughs> and I was just uh, pushing myself to the limits of what I could do in terms of mental focus and the physical demands of doing spacewalks and so on. So, and all you think about is trying to make an error-free contribution each day, help it, helping your buddies out up there. And then you get to the end where the science mission, most of three of my four missions were science missions. Science objectives are in the bag and now you got to bring the ship home. And that's another big emotional high because you get in about 45 minutes, you get to see the space shuttle perform a technological miracle. You are aboard a machine that can fly itself from the Indian Ocean all the way back to Kennedy Space Center on autopilot with the software and hardware developed in the 1970s. And you sit back and you watch this machine do this amazing feat of technology conceived by human minds and hands. And you're at the center of it while this machine says, just sit back boys and watch me do my job. And this machine flies you back through the atmosphere at hypersonic speed, puts on a spectacular light show that surrounds the cabin outside. Um, you just monitor and follow the checklist and in most of the cases, and there have been some terrible departures from the, those cases, but in most of the cases, you come flying back and it would deliver you right to the approach path on final uh, for the shuttle commander to take over and put you on the runway. So it really was an amazing technical spectacle to wish to witness. And I got to do that four times, three of the, three of the times I landed, I was up on the flight deck to to watch that happen. So it's really, really pretty incredible. And that's the that's the story from a, a shuttle mission from beginning to end. And then you get off on the to, the to the runway and look around at your orbiter and you go, when can I go again? So it's that kind of a, an emotional experience where you just want to get back on the treadmill, even knowing all the work ahead of you. You just want to get back on there and, and try for your next experience, which will be different and more challenging in some way. And I was lucky enough to find in the book um, a number of my colleagues talking about these different peaks of their uh, experiences on the shuttle and not be too repetitive with the descriptions. People gave me a lot of material to work with so I could tell different aspects of the story and not have to just talk about, oh, here comes another blast off story. Yeah, so I, I think we like to keep things light here at Balloons to Drones. So I want to ask kind of two two lighter questions, if you will. So I, I noticed on your first flight, you flew with uh, Kevin Chilton and Sidney Gutierrez, both USAFA grads. Now, as the Air Force Academy historian in my full-time job, uh, I want to know, was that the most Air Force Academy grads on one mission? I don't really know the answer to the question I know we had three on STS-59. I know that just looking briefly on the web, there were three academy grads on STS-133, you know, very close to the end of the shuttle's career. 
I don't think it happened that there were more than three on any particular mission. Just looking at the typical makeup of a crew, just find it hard to believe you would have had four and, and not have heard about that as a as a big point of pride for the academy. So probably three was the upper limit. And you know, I think I was one of two or three missions that had that many crew members on board. And then I would also think that there's probably only a handful of colleges, Purdue and the Naval Academy jump out at me, uh, where it would be even possible uh, for for something similar to happen. So so maybe that's a, a research project on my end, and I'll, I'll have to get back to you. But, yeah, beat Navy. <laughs> but since you mentioned, him, mentioned flying with him on STS-80, I have to ask, what was it like flying with Story Musgrave? Story was a terrific crewmate. So here's the the godfather of shuttle spacewalking. And he's also the man who fixed the Hubble telescope, along with his crewmates. But that story was the, you know, the leader of those EVAs back in 1993. And so, you know, he was a legend in the astronaut office. And he came and gave my astronaut class a, a talk about the mental and physical approach to spacewalking that you might consider. And here's the expert who's, you know, really been there. Uh, he flew on STS-6 and did the first shuttle EVA and helped design the the environmental, uh, the the EVA maneuvering unit, mobility unit, the EMU, the spacesuit. So he was in on the ground floor, and he actually practiced this uh, this doctrine that he was teaching us. So then to get assigned to fly with him, he's a guy who was 20 years older than I was, and he's 20 years older than I am <laughs> right now. And so at the time, he had that generational gap between us that gave him almost like a fatherly approach to being my crewmate. So. I'm the young whippersnapper. I had two shuttle missions under my belt, but there were still things I could learn from the master. And because he's got a bald head, looks like Yul Brynner, you know, he's sort of like the Yoda of the astronaut corps. And so he actually has that kind of background and knowledge. He, he knows shuttle flying inside and out. He flew six missions. The sixth mission was with me. And so I got to learn from the master and uh, he taught me a lot of techniques when we were in the simulator together. I was the flight engineer, but he sat right next to me for um, the um, launch experience. And so he could give me some tips, give me some things to think about. Some of the best tips were, Tom, let's experience space together in the most maximal way possible. So he would say things like, hey, when you're up there in orbit with me, let's go to the bathroom upside down. You know, <laughs> let's, let's use the toilet upside down. Well, I never thought of that. So that was an experience. You know, he gave us some tips about how to sleep inside the spaceship in ways that we hadn't tried before. Um, you know, different orientations of your body. One thing he said, Tom, we're going to be sitting together during launch. I'll be right on your right shoulder. When we get to within 15 seconds of the engines shutting down and we're going from three G's of acceleration to zero G, he goes, just before cutoff of the engines, let's close our eyes and tell me afterwards what sensation you experience when we go to zero thrust and zero gravity. What does your brain think is happening with your eyes closed at that point? So that was an amazing experience. He says he felt like he was falling forward, being tumbling off a cliff. I didn't have that reaction. I just felt like I just got light in my seat all of a sudden. But, you know, I'd never thought of doing an experiment like that. And, and one last thing I'll tell you was um, Story liked to look out the window at night, as we all did but he would make a science of it. So he would get our eyes dark adapted by turning all the cockpit lights down. And if you had the free time in the flight plan after, after bedtime, for example, we'd look out the window together, shoulder to shoulder, and 
these clouds of stars would appear in the night sky as we adapted our eyesight to the darkness of the cosmos. And you couldn't even identify the constellations because so many background stars emerged that they would swamp the familiar patterns that you had. So here's Story Musgrave next to me saying, Tom, just look out there. We're flying underneath the earth. What do you mean? He says, well, just picture the planet up above us and we're zooming down underneath our planet rather than looking down at it from orbit or like from an airliner seat. I'd never thought of that before. So we had some very interesting exchanges up there about intelligent life in the universe and perspective on the galaxy out there that we could see and just uh, really priceless moments to fly with a, a veteran of spaceflight like that. He's still a good friend today. Wow, that is uh, beautiful. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, we, we had another question about one of your missions, in fact, your last one. So correct me if I'm wrong, you have four uh, shuttle missions, and the last one on STS-98 is when you put up the destiny module of the ISS. So, you know, you could say that you had a literal hand in putting up part of the ISS. Uh, so we just kind of wanted to ask about that mission. What was that like uh, working with accomplishing that, and did that mean anything significant to you or the rest of the crew? It was a very rewarding mission, STS-98 on Atlantis, to go help build the space station. And the way I progressed through my missions, the way that my career unfolded, I had a couple of almost identical science missions looking at the Earth on Space Radar Lab 1 and 2. And then with Story on STS-80, we had two science satellites that we deployed out of Columbia, used the robot arm to let them go, and then snag them to bring them back. So that was really cool operations to do rendezvous and proximity operations and satellite grapple. Um, and then we had two spacewalks that were canceled, but that's another story. Um, and then on this last mission, I got to bump up again. I got another challenge given to me by the chief astronaut, Bob Cabana. Let's do some spacewalks, Tom, on the space station. You guys can help uh, install the, uh, the Destiny Science Lab, which is the operations center for the entire space station, as well as the U.S. laboratory science uh, locale. So... Um, it was even more challenging than my previous missions because we not only had to do rendezvous and now docking for the first time in my in my book, but also we had to do complex spacewalks, 19 hours uh, over three spacewalks to hook up all the utility lines and get the, the Destiny Lab outfitted for its operations up there. And it had to be choreographed and synced up with the station crew, with Marsha Ivins, the robot arm operator, with you know, my two pilots who were helping us run the EVAs and doing the rendezvous and, and docking work. So all of this had to be synced up and, and choreographed and with great precision and split second accuracy to make it all come off. And to me, it was a miracle that five of us on the shuttle, three of us on the space station could put together an operation like that. But we had mission control helping us. We had lots of great instructors who teach you the techniques of doing these things in space. And by yourself, you would have been completely overwhelmed and unable to do 5% of the work of, the, of that crew of five. But you put five people together with the team on the ground to support you and all the training that we got. And it's amazing the miracles that you can pull off. And you just go through it day by day and say, okay, we got docked today. Tomorrow we'll get suited up for the spacewalk. The next day after that, we'll come back inside and activate the systems on the laboratory. And if you just take that approach of incrementally going through the mission, by the end of it, you just go, I can't believe we've pulled all this stuff off. So um, I look up in the night sky periodically these days, and I look at the space station going over, and it's a brilliant star that streaks across the sky in about five minutes. And I can look up and say, 
And that's so neat that 22 years ago, that laboratory that I put up there with my crew is still up there functioning as the place where the astronauts go to work every day. It's, it's very gratifying. Yeah. And for any of our listeners who have never done that, you can easily look up on the internet where the uh, where the ISS is and where it's going to be in the nighttime sky. Uh, so if you've never had the opportunity uh, to do that, I highly suggest uh, looking it up and then stepping outside to, to watch it zoom across uh, your nighttime sky wherever you happen to be. Spotthestation.nasa.gov. That's the site. Yeah, there you go. You know, another thing that I've always found very interesting is the post-NASA life of the astronauts. Uh, because you guys aren't obviously a uniform whole. Uh, you, you go off, you have different hopes, desires, hobbies, things you want to do. I mean, astronauts have become artists. They've done television commercials. They've uh, they've appeared in, in TV shows. They've become newscasters. Um, and you flew four times, but you are the author or co-author of eight different books. Uh, so how have you approached your kind of post-NASA writing career? was my sense that I had a mission after my final mission on the shuttle. And I left NASA, you know, I put my family through the, the stresses of four missions and six countdowns. And uh, it was time to give them a break and, you know, let my kids see their relatives back east grow up where their, where their family was. So we left Houston and every astronaut has to make their own decision on what to do post, post flight. But um, for me, after four, it was time to, to shift gears. And so I shifted gears into a mission of, of writing about my experiences. You know, taxpayers pay for all this. And they sent me up there four times and I, I did the best I could for them. But I wanted to give them some kind of feedback about the kind of work that they were paying for and supporting. And a lot of astronauts write memoirs. And I just thought that I had something to say about the 1990s and my history of, of experiencing space and working up there. So first thing I did after I got back to the East Coast here where I live in Northern Virginia was to try to get my thoughts down on paper before I forgot them, you know, knowing the limitations of, of my mind. Uh, I thought it was going to evaporate if I didn't get to work on it soon. So I did a big outline of all of my experiences chronologically and then tried to start filling that in with detail. So I had to do you know, the technical background research about the, the facts and figures of the missions and so on. But I, I had at least thought ahead while I was in space to make daily tape recordings of the, my impressions of while I was up there. That was my way of keeping a diary. I didn't write anything down. It's hard to write in zero G, you know, and typing is, is laborious as well because you can't get your body into a good position. So just the tape recorder works just fine. So I had those notes and I had the photographs and I had the recollections of my crewmates. So I tried to put that story together in my skywalking memoir. And it took about three years to put that story together. But I enjoyed that experience enough, you know, writing and publishing that I thought, well, I've got some more to say about um, the common questions I get asked about spaceflight. I put that into a, a sort of a book aimed at middle schoolers called Ask the Astronaut. And I like to write about uh, aviation history. So I did a book with a co-author, Bob Gore, uh, about the P-47 fighter bomber pilots in World War II in the European theater. Those are some heroes of mine. Those guys who strapped on a thunderbolt and went out and bombed and strafed the Germans for 15 months in the European theater. Um, the, the group that I followed, the, the Hellhawks, the 365th fighter group, fascinating guys. And I, my academy roommate's dad was one of the Hellhawks. That's how I got hooked on that book project. And so I got to write about my heroes and interview a lot of these World War II vets who have now, of course, left us. 
And so 80 combat vet interviews that we did for that book. And that was very rewarding. So, you know, I just found one story that I was engaged with after another to try to get uh, get my contributions out there. And in the case of space shuttle stories, what was missing from the shuttle's 30-year history was there were lots of good technical histories by NASA and, and authors like Dennis Jenkins, who's written some great histories of the space transportation system on the technical side. But I wanted to add the human voice to that because the lessons that the crew members of the shuttle learned at sometimes great cost are going to be the same lessons we have to remember to succeed in returning to the moon or going on to Mars. And I didn't want those lessons to evaporate as the shuttle recedes in history. Well, you know, just thinking about all this that you're talking about and and putting together all these interviews and looking at all of the missions in, you know, this one volume, you know, the shuttle program is something that means a great deal to a lot of people. And, you know, people my age kind of grew up that, you know, I have, Brian, I'm sure the same way. I have the memories of in elementary school, they wheel in the little cart with the TV so we can watch the shuttle launch or landing or, or whatever it was, you know, so many times uh, as I was growing up. So it's kind of embedded in our culture uh, in a very important way. But I wanted to ask you, having put all this together and looking at all these missions uh, for this project, what do you think the legacy of the shuttle program is and how do you think future historians or, or future Americans should look back on this period? Well, the shuttle was a bridge to 21st century spaceships. You know, uh, it, I think when NASA thought of the shuttle back in the late 60s and into the early 70s, they thought it was going to be the DC-3 that would enable um, the widespread use of near-Earth space uh, in a commercially viable and profitable and reliable way. And it didn't quite get there. You know, the shuttle was a fragile vehicle, always experimental. And we learned that in those, in those two accidents. It was never a an airliner style of operation, despite NASA trying to sell it that way early on. And it never saved money for NASA. Uh, the reusability was there, but that did not save them money. The workforce required to make it reusable and inspect it between flights cost so much overhead that uh, it foreclosed other options for NASA developing a replacement for the shuttle for several decades um, during its career. But it did succeed in teaching us everything that we know how to do well in space, in my view. It couldn't go to the moon. Obviously, Apollo taught us how to do that. But everything else that we do, do well in lo low Earth orbit, from spacewalking to advanced robotics to uh, complex rendezvous and docking operations and choreography of seven, eight, ten people in space at the same time, all working together, that's all taught by the shuttle. And we're going to need those same skills when we go here to these deep space destinations. So it's a fantastic uh, bridge to the 21st century. The commercial ships we have today build on the shuttle's operation, and, and they're safer and they're more economical. Um, that's a great improvement that the shuttle enabled by the progress that we made in those 30 years. So I look back at the shuttle as a spaceship where uh, it's it's been so capable and versatile and advanced that no other nation has built anything like it and operated anything close to its capabilities, even now a dozen years after it's retired. And secondly. Um, it's it's still in 2024. It's still the vision of an American spaceship. It's the icon of what an American spaceship should be in Hollywood, in popular culture. And for most of the population of the United States of America, when you think of a, an American spaceship, they think of the space shuttle. Uh, they don't think of a Crew Dragon yet or a Boeing Starliner yet or the Starship from SpaceX yet. Maybe that'll happen. But I look at the space shuttle as um, 
the machine that really gave us our chops in low earth space. And um, the commercial companies are gonna take what the shuttle taught us and run away with that. And NASA is gonna use what the shuttle taught us and take us back to the moon. Yeah, well, uh, it is a great book. It is Space Shuttle Stories, first-hand astronaut accounts from all 135 missions from Smithsonian Books. Uh, Tom, if folks are more interested uh, in you or your writing or um, uh, what you've got going on, where can they find you? Do you have an online presence? Sure. My website is uh, www.astronauttomjones.com. I've got a blog there and lots of photography and uh, mission summaries. And of course, summaries of all my books are there and you can find out where to obtain those and you can buy them all online. It's easy to get the books or get them from your local library. And then I'm on Facebook. You can just look up astronaut Tom Jones as well. And on X, I'm Astro Tom Jones. So I look forward to people getting into the book and enjoying some of these stories from my colleagues. It was a great privilege to be able to talk to them and preserve their stories. Okay, uh, you can continue to find me on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, at Brian Lastly. You can find me at www.brianlastly.com. Mike, what about yourself? As usual, I am online at mwhankins.com. All of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which is on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email or send us an article for uh, consideration of publication on the Balloons to Drones site, please go to balloonstodrones.com slash contact, and we will see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you.